Well, good morning, everyone. We're continuing on here in uh, Romans, and uh, we are in a section in 14 and the first half of 15 that's all related together. And uh, so this is kind of the midpoint. If you think about Star Wars, this is Empire Strikes Back, okay? Return of the Jedi is next week. Uh, so this is the kind of the midpoint uh, of this series. Parg started us off last week, and uh, then Leon's going to finish us up next week. So we'll look forward to that. I came across uh, one of those satirical uh, blog posts uh, about 10 years ago. I just want to share it with you. Here's the title of it. 47 Church Splits Finally Brings Doctrinal Perfection. Here's how it, start, here's how it goes. The small community of Centerville has a population of just over 5,000 people, but with a total of 48 Presbyterian churches, they also hold the record for the most number of Presbyterian churches in a small town. The number of high churches has to do with multiple splits that have taken place over the years because of one issue or the other. Originally, in 1899, only one Presbyterian church existed, simply known as Centerville Presbyterian Church. With about 20 families, the church was at that time the largest in the Centerville area. By 1911, the church had grown to 150 members, but a dispute had arisen within the congregation over whether or not the offering should be taken before or after the sermon. Thus, the first split took place with the dissenting congregation forming Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. In 1915, a dispute arose uh, amongst Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the regulative principle. It seems that some members liked the idea of having flowers in the sanctuary while others objected. As a result, CRPC split and Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church was organized with 25 members. Several more splits took place between 1915 and 1929. In 1931, another dispute arose among the members of 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can seem to remember, nor do any records indicate. Suffice it to say, approximately half the congregation left and nine people formed 3rd Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. More splits took place between 1931 and 1975 when a major split took, pl took place within the PCUS denomination over the issue of merging with the more liberal PCUSA. At that time, 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain in the PCUS. Uh, Fifteen members broke off, though, and formed St. John's Presbyterian Church. One week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the choice to name the church uh, using the word saint. Since 1975, more splits have happened, uh, and uh, with the most recent occurring this past weekend when a dispute arose amongst the members of 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster, Covenant, Reformed, Presbyterian Church over the issue of the observance of the Lord's Day. The issue in question was whether or not it was acceptable for someone to check their email on the Sabbath. Those who objected have now split off and formed, now wait for this, okay, the Presbyterian, totally reformed, covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, regulative, credo-communionist, amillennial, presuppositional church of Centerville. Paul Davis, one of the teaching elders of 
PTRCWSRCCAPCC, said, I think we finally got it right now. We now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. PTRCWSRCCAPCC is hoping to grow and help reach out to the community. (laughs) We're up to six people on Sundays now, said Davis. I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little more. Well, now that's a funny story. Uh, Sorry, I need to dismiss the kids. My bad, Mandy, sorry. Uh, Second class and under, you can go, all right? Let me read that again. I'll start over, all right? Second class and under, you can go out with Mandy there. There you go. Now, that's a funny story, uh, but it's only funny because we've been in, or maybe we've heard stories of churches that have gotten into all sorts of discord over issues that in the end seem really silly, right? Maybe you've been in a church like that. People, uh, People fighting over carpet or choir robes or something like that, or maybe dancing or some other issue. And maybe you have personally been at a place in your life where you've uh, maybe held a grudge against a brother or sister over some issue that in the final analysis was just not that important. When you go to A&E, they do triage. There's a nurse in the background that takes all the cases that come in And they decide whom they're going to treat based on the level of severity of the injury. Who are they going to treat as a matter of primary importance? And churches and individuals must do theological triage as well by deciding, okay, what issues are, uh, are worth our time or even, in some cases, our division. Because we have to be honest, there are kind of first order gospel issues in which we have to say this is a matter of the gospel and we must divide over it. But there's also second-order issues, which relate more to how we practice the gospel. Uh, Issues that we can't remain abstract in. Uh, Take baptism, for instance. We have to decide, based on conviction, are we going to baptize infants or are we not? Right? It doesn't stay in the mere theoretical arena. And so it's okay at a level for there to be Presbyterian churches or Baptist churches who think differently about that issue and yet love one another as brothers and sisters in the gospel. But then we're left with third or maybe fourth or even fifth level issues, which aren't unimportant, but they're not really essential and we can have differing views on them within the same group Uh, of believers in a local church. Opinions, as Paul has called them early in chapter 14. Things, again, that are matters of indifference. That word that Parag used last week, adiaphora. Those things that that are are morally indifferent. And, And if we're honest, those kinds of issues are often shaped more by our cultural and religious upbringing than they are anything else. And then, with all those different things and opinions, here we are, we come into the same church together. So think about it. Some people are more informal. Some people are more formal. Some people forbid alcohol. Some people don't. Some don't do anything on Sundays. 
Some people are happy to do anything, play sports, go shopping, whatever. Think about holiday observances. We're, we're coming up on Christmas. Some people go all in in different holidays. Some people abstain altogether. Some are more strict with kids. Some are less strict. Some parents choose to homeschool their kids. God's word doesn't say anything about movies or cards or music styles or cigars or dancing or, listen to this one, vaccines or at least in the New Testament, tattoos or whether the toilet roll goes under or over, right? And because our commitments to some of these matters are so ingrained in us, it becomes easy for us to normalize them or to deify them and to impose them on one another. And listen, if you've ever experienced that, we, you know that we can begin to despise or to stand in judgment over our brothers and sisters. So how do we relate in these areas in which we are free to be different? Well, we can summarize Paul's argument, and Parg did a great job last week, from verses 1 to 12, with the phrase, live and let live. Live and let live. Verse 13a, Paul summarizes it here. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Live and let live. In these matters in which there's difference of opinion, live and let live. And so in these matters, in this context, there were those in in Paul's day in this church in Rome who were largely uh, Jewish in their background, culturally Jewish, who felt that certain things related to the law were still in effect. And Paul notes three of them, diet, drink, and days. Those three things for these cultural Jews in this church were still matters of importance. They felt that these things related to the law were still in effect. And there were others in the church, primarily Gentiles, who recognized freedom from those constraints of the law. So here's what we want to think about. How do people living together in a local church live together in unity amid those differences of opinion? How do we love our neighbor? Remember, we've talked about loving the neighbor several times since chapter 12. How do we love our neighbor when we disagree about these indifferent matters? So make no mistake here, all right? This is where Paul is going. Paul is interested in a deeper principle than merely who is right and who is wrong. He's interested in unity. Now, if you listened to Adam and followed along as he read the text, we need to talk about the elephant in the room in this text. Why does Paul spend 10 of the 11 verses talking to the stronger brother. Did you notice that? 10 of the 11 verses are talking directly to the stronger brother. Why? It's not because he doesn't agree with him. He does. Paul identifies himself with the stronger brother. He does it here throughout these verses But then he also does in his other writings. Paul is a believer who does not feel that he is bound in conscience 
to follow these Old Testament practices of the law. He explicitly states throughout these verses that diet, drink, and days, those things that were part of the Old Testament law, are no longer valid today. That is, that the weaker brother, the one who feels restricted in his conscience, is actually incorrectly binding his conscience. And so we see this in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. He even invokes Jesus. He says, this is something that I got from Jesus, mind you. Think about back to Mark chapter 7 in, in verse 19. Jesus is teaching. And he says, do you, not, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? That's ceremonial language. That it, the language of clean and defiled uh, has to do with those Old Testament food laws. He says, since it enters into his heart, but not his stomach, and is expelled. Or sorry, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then Mark adds parenthetically, thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus said, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. So Paul's lining up with Jesus that, that these Old Testament food laws are not binding anymore for a believer. Food is unclean. Think about Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he goes to the home of Cornelius. And in verses 13 to 15, a voice comes to Peter from heaven. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, what God has made clean, do not call common. So Paul's lining himself behind Jesus and behind the apostles in terms of him not being bound in his conscience by these things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So Paul explicitly states that these diet, drink, and days, which were part of the Old Testament law, aren't valid today for believers he even calls these new freedoms good down in verse 22. Look at what he says down in verse 22. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself and what he approves. In other words, the one with the stronger conscience that doesn't feel bound by these things is blessed in doing them. He's blessed in doing them. What Paul's going to say to the stronger brother is not easy. And he wants him, I think, Paul wants the stronger brother or sister to know that he's on their side. He wants the stronger brother or sister to know that, yes, they are right and they are free. But what Paul is going to tell them is that being free to exercise their right isn't what the Christian life is about. It's not what the Christian life is about. The reason he addresses the strong 
is because the strong are free to set aside their right for the sake of their brother or sister, for the sake of unity. The strong can actually decide not to do something. Look at verse 13. Again, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather, and the Greek word is very similar to the word for judgment. It's a play on words. So let us not pass judgment, but let us instead judge not to put a stumbling block. Let us not make decisions anymore about the state of someone's soul, and let us instead decide not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brother. So the strong can decide not to do something. The weak cannot. They're bound by their conscience. Andy Nasali, in his book on conscience, called Conscience, said, only the strong have a choice in third-level matters like meat, holy days, and wine. They can either partake or abstain, whereas the conscience of the strict allows them only one choice. It's a great privilege for the strong to have double the choices of the weak. They must use this gift wisely by considering how their actions affect the sensitive consciences of their brothers and sisters. Now, this is really important. This is really important. Sin is the issue here. The issue here is the one with the weaker conscience sinning. The issue here is not offense. The issue is not bother. The issue is not that the weak are annoyed because the strong are exercising their right. We're not talking about one that's merely annoyed. We're not even talking about one here who is merely susceptible to some addiction, although we should be careful there as well. We're talking about one sinning against their conscience. Here's what one commentator says. The weak brother or sister in this chapter is the one who is weak in faith. They believe that their faith does not allow them to do certain things. The weakness has nothing to do with an emotional or a physical susceptibility. It is a theological weakness. They feel bound by their conscience. Now let's think about conscience a little bit. Conscience is a capacity to know that something is right or wrong. Conscience is to the soul what your nerves are to your body. So conscience tells us that something is wrong. Now all of our consciences are at different points of maturity. We have to remember that, that conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Non-believers have a conscience. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. The conscience is not the Holy Spirit, though the Holy Spirit informs our conscience. So your conscience is not infallible. It must be informed as you grow and as we learn. So, so scripture, prayer, the illumination of spirit, books, sermons, uh, training, all of those things work to inform our conscience as we mature and grow. So your conscience is not what it was 10 years ago. And God willing, it won't be what it is now in 10 more years because God is working in your conscience. So our conscience 
for good or ill, gets shaped by all kinds of things. It gets shaped by our culture of origin. It gets shaped by the kind of church that we grew up in or, or were converted in. It gets shaped by our influences. And as the Spirit moves in us, our consciences are transformed so that they begin to align more fully with what God desires and what God wills. And this is all part of the renewal of mind that Paul has talked about in Romans 12, our sanctification. So the appropriate response of the strong, and again, we're talking about the ones who don't have restrictive consciences in these matters of indifference. The appropriate response of the strong to those who are weak, those whose consciences are, remember for Paul, incorrectly bound by these restrictive things, the appropriate response is patience as God works in these weaker brothers and sisters. Now just make a note. Paul could have pulled rank, couldn't he? He could have said to these weaker brothers and sisters, come on guys, just get over it. Build a bridge and get over it, right? He could have said that to them. You're not correct here, just move past it and get over it. But he doesn't. Rather, he tells the stronger brother to choose to use their freedom to serve their weaker brother. Here's what one old commentator, F.F. Bruce, said. A Christian stumbles if imitating the action of a more emancipated or free Christian, he does something of which his own conscience does not approve. It would be better for the free Christian to help his weaker brother to have a more enlightened conscience. But this is a process which cannot be rushed. Patience is demanded. Now, here's why this matters. It matters because our conscience can be seared or dulled. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2 talks about the consciences of those who are not following Jesus being seared as with a, a branding iron. Take a branding iron and you cauterize a wound. You sear it closed. And you also kill uh, all the nerves. It becomes dull, the conscience does, as we ignore it. Now, just real quick, look down at verse 23. This is the only verse where Paul is speaking directly to the weaker brother. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The weaker brother here who doubts because his conscience tells him that something is not totally right. And Paul says that he is condemned if he does it anyway, if he acts against his conscience, because in acting to do what he thinks is a sin, he is willfully asserting himself over God. So he's saying to himself, God, I think that you're telling me not to do this. But I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Do you see? Do you see the problem? And every time he does this, 
Every time she does this, every time she ignores her conscience, every time he ignores that voice, it grows weaker and weaker and weaker. And the danger is that if he grows accustomed to doing anyway what he believes to be sinful, eventually he will grow dull and begin to do what is clearly and actually sinful. Again, Let's just be clear here about the issues. These are matters in which God's word doesn't tell us one way or the other. So there is a revealed morality. So in other words, adultery is always wrong. We don't have to think about our conscience going, yeah, maybe it's not, maybe it's not a big deal. No, adultery is always wrong. God has revealed it. Uh, drunkenness is always wrong. These are matters of indifference in which God's word doesn't speak definitively. And the one who ignores his conscience eventually grows more and more dull to his conscience. And that slope leads him to destruction. Here's how one commentator said it. Paul judges it's dangerous for Christians to defy their consciences. Because if they get in the habit of ignoring the voice of conscience, they may ignore that voice even when the conscience is well informed and properly warning, warning them of something that is positively evil. See, that's the problem. And this is what Paul's warning about here. A brother with a restrictive conscience might look at a more free brother, again, who is doing what he has the right to do in Christ. But that weaker brother might look at him and in a desire to emulate that brother, decide to do what they aren't sure is right and in doing so, violate their conscience. And Paul says, not only that that is sin, but that that leads that weaker brother on a slippery slope down to destruction. Because eventually, that weaker brother, violating his conscience, over and over again, eventually wanders away from the faith unto destruction. What they should do, the weaker brother, is abstain. They should study. They should allow their conscience to be informed. And then, when there is no doubt, then there is no longer sin. Back in chapter 5, or sorry, uh, chapter 14, verse 5, Paul said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Then you can do this, that, or the other. So what does Paul want the strong brother to see here? It's this, that Christian freedom is not about me. It's about we. Christian freedom is not about me, it's about we. So freedom isn't self-serving. It is others-serving. So the strong must not stand on their rights. Rather, they must stand on love for their brother or sister. Because standing on our rights, standing on what we are free to do in Christ, this is the point that all of life is about God. It's not about us. The kingdom of God, Paul says in these verses, is bigger than whatever indifferent issue is at play. Just look at verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, 
peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The the focus, the way Paul structures these verses, everything points to the middle, the central argument in verses 17, 18, and 19. This is the central focus for Paul. And it is that the kingdom of God is bigger than whatever third, fourth, or fifth level issue you guys are arguing about. The kingdom of God is bigger than that. It's not about what you are free to do. Verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's not about what I'm free to do. It's about what will bring peace and upbuilding in the kingdom of God. And so we are not loving Jesus and pursuing that unity if by standing on our rights we are trampling down our weaker brother or sister, the one whose conscience is restrictive. Flaunting our freedom can destroy a sister by leading her to do what is for her sinful. And that's not loving because it doesn't build her up in the faith. It pushes her away. This is how the word grieve is used in verse 15, if your brother is grieved, again, it doesn't mean annoyed. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That, that, that word there, grief, is what someone experiences when they do what for them is sinful. And even more than that, it's that feeling of doing what they feel is sinful as they walk away from the Lord. Because they see someone else doing it. And Paul says it is wrong to do what would cause a brother or sister to sin. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Because food is not what the kingdom of God's about. It's not what the kingdom is about. Paul says it's better to exercise your rights privately before God because other people are more important than our right to do one thing or the other. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And then he says, blessed are those. Blessed are those who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. Look, if your conscience will allow you to do it, then do it, unless it's going to cause your brother or sister to sin. In that case, do it privately before God and be glad that you can do it. See, God's concern is unity that results in mutual upbuilding because this is what brings peace in the body. So what do we do with these verses here? Paul has Praise the Lord. He has declared, he has praised and affirmed our freedom in the first 12 verses. That we are free in Christ. And so we can live and let live in these indifferent matters. We answer to God, he says in those first 12 verses. But in these verses, he drills down a notch. And just like when I got my root canal, he gets close to a nerve. (laughs) We don't just live and let live. 
That's what the world does. And they hate each other, but they live and let live. They tolerate each other. But Paul calls us to more than mere tolerance in the family of God. Our call is to love and let live. Our call is to love sacrificially as we live together. So we have to go beyond live and let live. Yes, we're free, and that's great. Christ has accomplished everything for us. We aren't bound to these external things as we were before. So I'm free to do as my conscience allows in these indifferent matters. Yes. But I'm also free to deny myself what I'm free to do for the sake of my brother or sister. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 29, my liberty isn't defined by someone else's conscience. He says, Christ has freed me. And so, yes, I am free to do certain things. But if my doing something that I'm free to do will draw another brother into sinning, then I shouldn't do it. And this is the point, that I'm not the most important person in the room. And you're not the most important person in the room. The gospel's work in the life of your brother is more important than your freedom or your tradition or whatever might be at issue. We use our freedom for others. Again, F.F. Bruce said, Paul wishes to safeguard the Roman Christians against this, encouraging them to treat the variety rather as an occasion for charity, forbearance, and understanding. It's good to be strong in faith and emancipated in conscience, but Christians are not isolated individuals but members of a fellowship. It is therefore the responsibility of all, and especially those who are stronger and more mature, to care for the well-being of the fellowship. This is where love hits the mark. This is what Paul did. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, Paul said, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, then I won't eat meat again. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13, that this is my right to do this, but, but I'm going to forego it. And listen, it's what Jesus did. In the very next verses that Leon's going to hit next week, he says specifically, Christ did not please himself, but he set aside his right for the sake of us. For our sake. And so we imitate Jesus in loving one another and laying our lives down. Well, as we close, I just want to think about how we walk this line of love and let live. As I mentioned, uh, some of us are minimalists. Our consciences are not restricted in a lot of things. And look, your conscience can be restricted in one area and free in another area. Uh, This isn't that your uh, conscience is restricted in all things necessarily, 
But some of us are, are more minimalist. Some of us are, are more maximalist. There's more things that we feel bound in our conscience over. It's not always easy to think about this and to do this kind of triage. It gets messy. But here's the first thing we have to remember. We have to do our homework to make a good decision about triage, about what is primary and what is not. And churches, uh, churches have to think about this as well as individuals. Uh, is this, whatever issue it is, a matter of opinion? Or has God spoken definitively about it? Now that means, doing our homework means that we seek to understand and to respect one another. That we strive for empathy with one another as we seek to understand our brother and sister, where they're coming from. Because again, we're all products of our backgrounds. And our backgrounds shape us more than we realize that they do. And so we seek understanding. Again, Paul doesn't berate the weak. He doesn't tell them to grow up. He's confident that they will as the Spirit works in them, but he encourages patience and empathy. Second, we have to ask good questions in order to gain that understanding. And listen, there's a difference between asking good questions and cynically having a questioning spirit. One of those is not genuine. The other is. And so we want to ask good questions, seeking to understand and to have empathy for our brother and sister. I remember, uh, I remember several years ago talking with a, a new believer, and they said to me, you know, I've given up bacon. And I was like, okay, you know, great. I said, you know, you don't really have to because God is, you know, Jesus has fulfilled the law. This is the food laws are no longer in effect. But look, if you feel like you shouldn't eat bacon... Don't eat bacon. Don't eat bacon. But we had to, I had to ask some questions to get to that. The third thing is to check for blind spots. Again, all of us feel like our issue is the most important issue, and all of us feel like what we, what we're, the way that we're viewing the issue is the way that everyone should view the issue. So we need to check for blind spots. So ask other people around you that know you well to help evaluate your reasoning. I read an article this week by Matt Hodges, and he talked about oftentimes we use a, a Trojan horse to import a third or a fourth or fifth level issue into a gospel conversation. And so he suggests asking people around you, am I thinking well about this issue? Or am I thinking in a way that's not helpful? Again, if you're convinced in your mind in a particular direction, you shouldn't act. You shouldn't do it. Don't violate your conscience. And when we are confronted with a, a brother or sister who has certain scruples, who has certain hang-ups about some, uh, some ex external or other matter, those who are strong need to modify our expression of our freedom in order to show love. Because love outweighs liberty. Now again, I want to be careful here because Paul's not encouraging, as Park said last week, the tyranny of the weaker brother. 
We're not talking here about one who is annoyed or offended by those that exercise their freedom. Paul's already told that person not to judge the brother who doesn't feel bound in their conscience. No, Paul's talking about a person who feels that they would be sinning were he to emulate the freedom that their stronger brother has. Now, those things are very different. They're very different. I'm not doing spiritual harm to someone who might be annoyed that I don't read from the King James Version, but that I read from the ESV. So we have to be careful about how we think, about who's in view. And finally, in all things, we follow the example of Christ in seeking ultimately to glorify God. Well, I want to close with uh, Doug Moo's words in his uh, application commentary. He says, in conclusion, we need to say again, the need to limit the expression of our liberty out of love for God and fellow believers is the key principle in this chapter. Our culture insists on rights, and it is easy for Christians to bring that attitude into the church. But the spiritual health of the body is far more important than our rights. The freedom God has purchased for us through his son is a precious gift. But it is a freedom to live as God wants, not as we want. Martin Luther put it well in his famous comment on Christian liberty. A Christian man or woman is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man or woman is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And that's where we live, loving one another, even in these matters of indifference. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this today, I pray that you would help us. These issues are not easy. Uh, it isn't easy to, uh, to, to come to a, a full and complete understanding often. And it feels, Father, that it's even less easy. It's even more difficult, Father, to, to have charity with our brothers and sisters that see things differently. And so, Father, we need your Spirit to give us the mind of Christ, to help us, Father, to yield to our brother and sister in love. <coughs> I pray, Father, that you would work in us. Again, Father, it's difficult for individuals. It's difficult for churches. And I pray that you would help us to judge these things well and to be examples of the love that Christ showed us who did not hold on to his rights, but who gave himself freely for our sake. And Father, I pray that if there are those here today that feel that being a Christian is about performing some list of do's and don'ts, Father, I pray that your spirit would help them to see that Jesus gave himself 
He did the list. He did it perfectly. And in dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our failure to keep the list. And then by looking to him, we can throw away the list because we can have life, fullness of life in him. As Paul says in Colossians 2, he canceled the debt having paid for it on the cross. Father, we sang those words earlier. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And certainly that is true of us. We have nothing apart from Christ. But because of Christ, we have everything. So Father, would you work in us to make us more like Jesus, that we might love the way he loves in giving himself for others. In Jesus' name, amen.